Father God, we are grateful for the work that you've done on our behalf on the cross of Jesus Christ. We are grateful that we stand here today forgiven and loved as sons and daughters of God and um, able to enter into your holy space, knowing that you accept us, that you love us, that you invite us in to, to learn from you, to sit at your feet, to uh, experience your grace. God, we are grateful for this day, for this opportunity to praise you and to sing of your worth, your value, your might. We pray that you bless our time together in the Word, and bless um, our efforts to, to honor you in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. It's an honor to get uh, the opportunity to preach here this morning. I can't uh, remember the first time I came to Providence, but it was a long time ago. Uh, my family and I have uh, considered this place a wonderful retreat, a place of... Uh, of rest and renewal, and it's just a, a great opportunity for me to get to speak a little bit into uh, the life of this community that's uh, blessed me and my family in so many ways. Um, just a little context, I am Susan Clark's uh, son-in-law, uh, Rachel Clark's uh, husband, and uh, the father of four of these kids over here. So um, uh, for the last 25 years or so, I've been involved in Christian ministry, and uh, I know that the hardest Sunday to preach is this Sunday. Uh, the Sunday after Christmas, because this, this huge buildup of Christmas, all of the beautiful singing, all of the parties, all of the activities, we have spent ourselves. Many of us have ate too much. Um, we've slept too little. Uh, we've probably broke our budget by this point, and everything is just a little bit out of whack this last week of the year. It's hard to know what exactly to do with ourselves. It's hard to know how to finish out this year well. You know, starting things is relatively easy, but finishing things, that's where things get difficult. I know at this new year, many of us are thinking about starting some new things, maybe a new diet, a new exercise program. Starting something new is kind of fun, but hanging in there for the long haul, that is the real test. The challenge of sustaining things is a reality in all of our commitments. For example, getting married is actually pretty easy. I'll have to tell you that, Kyra. Getting married is actually pretty easy. But staying married, through all the adjustments, through the struggles, through the trials, that is not an easy task. The same is true for the Christian life. Becoming a Christian is relatively easy. Acknowledge to God that you are a sinner and receive by faith the grace of God. That's not that difficult. There's no work you can do to earn your salvation. There's no way you can qualify for it. God simply gives freely to all who recognize their need for Christ, for those who trust in him alone. But then comes the hard part, the hanging in there part of the Christian life in a world that is hostile towards God and hostile towards his people. The evil one dangles all kinds of temptations in front of us, Oppositions to the things of God. There's this battle going on outside and inside as our own flesh entices us to forsake Christ, to gratify our own self-centered desires. Temptation after temptation comes at us, and the real test is, will we endure? Will we persevere to the finish line? Finishing well is hard work. Think about it this way. How many of you have ever run a 100-yard dash? 
many of us, maybe most of us. Most of us have probably finished a 100-yard dash before, but how about a marathon? How many of you have run a marathon? Not very many. Um, when it comes to the Christian life, uh, it's more like a marathon than a 100-yard dash. So when we see someone finish the Christian life well, we should try to find out what is his or her secret. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the, the life, the legacy of the Apostle Paul. Paul crossed the finish line with a faith with energy to spare. In fact, we see here in this text, he had enough energy to jog back to his friend Timothy, who was languishing behind, and encourage him to keep running. We find these encouraging words in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. So if you, if you have your Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to get it out. We're going to look at, in depth at this text. It's 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. I will read it for you. And I want you to just consider these encouraging words to you today from the Apostle Paul. He says, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, it says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all of those who have longed for his appearing. There we are in the text. All of those who have longed for his appearing. In this text, Paul is looking to death. He's looking to the end of his race. And I want you to imagine for a second being Timothy and reading these words. What kind of emotions would you feel? I believe likely Timothy burst into tears when he first encountered this text. These words likely sobered him with the reality that Paul, his mentor, was handing on the baton of faith to him. Timothy is now charged with the task that we're charged with, finishing the race well. Paul's words here are extraordinary. They are not those of a discouraged, broken old man. There's no despair. There's no defeat. There's no cynicism. There's no fear as he faces imminent execution. His calm assurance is all the more startling when we consider his circumstances. He is writing this letter from prison. Even the worst prisons of our days of our day would be like the Hilton, considered to his, considering his circumstances. Paul's cell was likely a dark, damp dungeon, reached only by a ladder or a rope from a hole in the floor above. He likely had no windows, no lights, no toilet, no furniture of any kind, no running water. And so as Paul sat here in a prison... The circumstances outside were not very encouraging either. Many seemed to be turning away from this aging apostle, even turning away from the faith, following false teachers of the day. Paul had labored long, for likely 30 years at this point, preaching the gospel all around the Roman Empire. But at this point, he, followers were probably just a tiny group of people scattered here and there throughout the empire. Paul was not a world-famous apostle at this point. His struggle is real, and it's evident in this text. And yet Paul was clearly at rest. 
He was confident in the way that he had spent his life and calmly assured as he was squarely facing death. So what does this apostle, what do these words have to teach us about finishing well? Well, to get an outline of this sermon in your head, I want you to simply look at the the three verses in this text. First note in verse 6, Paul speaks of the present in saying, I am. And then in verse 7, he refers to the past, saying, I have. And in verse 8, he speaks of the future, saying, now there is in store. So to finish well, we must keep these three focuses in our perspective. Paul's view of the present, Paul's view of the past, and Paul's view of the future. So first, what was Paul's view of the present? Three key words help us to finish well. They are reproduce, sacrifice, and departure. First word, reproduce. Paul could finish well because he had reproduced himself in the life of others. In the original Greek text, verse 6 begins with an emphatic pronoun, I, which contrasts with the you mentioned in verse 5, along with a connective for. The flow of this thought here in verse 6 is, Timothy, you preach the word, even in the face of opposition, because I, I am about to die. I'm handing you the torch to carry on. You see, dying is much easier when you know that you're leaving behind someone who can carry on the cause of Christ because of your influence. So each of us needs to ask ourselves some question, some questions. Am I working for the kingdom task? Am I obeying Jesus' great commission to go and to make disciples of others? The great commission applies to every Christian at some level. If you know Jesus as Lord and you're walking with him as Savior, then he calls you to make disciples of others. That's our present purpose in life. So think about it. How are you doing in that mission? You can begin at home. Every Christian parent ought to be forging an all-out campaign to train up his or her children to know Christ and to walk with them. Discipleship with our children doesn't just happen by accident. It begins by setting an example. It begins with us as adults walking in authenticity with Jesus. Beyond that, parents, are you taking time to read the Bible, to pray with your family? Are you, are you making sure that your family gathers regularly with the Lord's people on the Lord's day in worship and in teaching? Do you talk openly and honestly about spiritual things? Do you, do you apply God's word to life when tensions are high, when trials come? Do you apply God's word on the home front? Moving beyond our immediate family, we ought to have a vision for reproducing ourselves in the lives of others. 2 Timothy 2.2 says that godly men should be handing off the faith to younger men. Titus 2.3-5 says that godly women should be training younger women in the things of God. When you are gone, there should be others who will carry on the cause of Christ because of you and because of your influence. So reproduction. Reproduction is a key component to being content in the present moment with Christ. Paul could finish well because he was reproducing himself in Timothy. So who are you reproducing yourself in today? 
Second word, the second word here is sacrifice. Paul could finish well because he viewed his life as a sacrifice or a sacrificial offering to God. Paul did not view his execution as cruel tragedy or as unfair treatment in life of his many years of dedicated service, but rather he saw his, his life as sacrifice, as the ultimate sacrificial offering. Now, where did he get this idea from? Well, likely from the Old Testament, the the sacrificial lamb that's placed on the altar before God. And just before it's lit on fire, the priest would pour upon it a quart of wine over this sacrifice. This final act of wine being poured out over the sacrifice is an act of worship to God. And, And that's how Paul saw his own life and his death. His whole life had been this living sacrifice presented to God, and now in his death, he thought of it as a drink offering being poured out over the top. So to finish well, we, like Paul, need to view all of our life as a sacrifice, as a sacrificial worship to God. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, Romans 12.1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. We don't just serve God to get our own personal acclaim or praise. We serve Jesus, we serve God as an act of worship. If others turn away from us, if they badmouth us, as they're obviously doing to Paul, it's okay, because our lives are an offering to God. This also means that to finish well, we need to view ourselves as expendable in God's service. Here is this great apostle to the Gentile, the man who did more to spread the gospel than any other person in church history. We know his influence is incalculable, yet he could finish well because he saw himself as expendable. He saw himself as a flavorful drink offering to top off his life of sacrifice. Paul told, him, told the Ephesians elders this in Acts 20, verse 24. Listen to his words here. He says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So if you and I have inflated notions of our own importance we will not finish well. But, if, but how many of us have actually thought of ourselves as expendable, as dispensable, or even as unessential? That's not our usual human line of thinking. Yet we here are called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And a sacrifice implies that we get nothing in return for the offer. All of us should view ourselves, all of our service, as a sacrifice, an offering to God. All of our efforts go to God, and they're for him and his glory alone. The third word here is departure. Paul could finish well because he viewed his death as a departure. Look again at verse 6. It says, The time for my departure is near. In the Bible, death is never an end, never the end of existence but rather a temporary separation of the soul from the body. It's a departure, not an end. 
The Greek word that Paul uses here is a vivid one, and it has several meanings. It can be used to describe the unyoking of an animal from a plow or a cart. In that way, it means that it's the end of our labors in this life. It can also be used for the loosening of the bonds of a prisoner. So in that way, death is seen as a release from the bonds of a decaying body. The word here could also be used for the loosening of ropes from a soldier's tent. This suggests that death, in death, our battle is over. The victory is won. We are headed home. The word could also be used for the loosening or the mooring ropes of a ship. So at death, our earthly ship leaves the shores of the stormy earth and puts in at the always calm port of heaven. If we have this view of death as a departure, not the end, then we'll be able to finish without fear and even with anticipation, knowing that we are to, when we depart, we are to be with Christ. And to be with Christ is much better. Our goal is to be able to say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So to finish well, we have to keep our focus on the present, like Paul did. Present ministry is all about reproduction. It's all about sacrifice to God. And our impending death is a departure to be with Christ. Moving on to verse 7. The second concept of finishing well is keeping Paul's view of the past. What was his view? Well, Paul was able to look back on his past and confidently say that he had done well. Now, he's not implying that there had not been any mistakes that there had not been discouragement. Of course there had been. But through it all, through all the problems, through the trials, Paul had stayed focused on the race. And he could say, I have done what God has called me to do. To be able to join Paul in saying this at the end of our life, we must be able to embrace the thinking behind these phrases in verse 7, these three statements. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. So let's look at those three statements. First, I have fought the good fight. Here Paul is using an athletic metaphor. It could be of wrestling or or running a race. It conveys that the Christian life is not a picnic. Rather, the Christian life is a struggle. It's a struggle against the forces of evil. And Paul is saying that it's not just any fight, but it's the good fight. A fight for the glory of God. A fight for our own sanctification. So can you say today with confidence, I am currently involved in this good fight, this struggle for the cause of Christ? Well, let me help you answer that question. If you're living primarily for your own comfort, if you're spending your time, your money on the pursuit of the American dream, then you're likely not living for the cause of Christ. You may attend church every week. You may profess to know Jesus as Lord, But if your purpose in life is to be as comfortable as you can be, then you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you're likely not involved in the struggle for Christ if comfort is your goal. But if, on the other hand, your purpose for life is building up the body of Christ, building up the church, extending his kingdom through your labor, through your time, with your money, in accordance to the gifts and talents and opportunities that God has given to you, then you are involved in the good fight, in the Christian struggle. 
And when time comes for you to die, it will be good to be able to look back and say, I have been involved in the good fight, the great struggle for the cause of Christ. The second phrase that Paul uses here to refer to his past is, I have finished the race. Paul here is referring to a long race, kind of like a marathon. The word marathon actually comes from a geographical place, a real place where a battle took place between Greece and Persia in 490 B.C. The legend is that after the Greeks won this battle, a Greek soldier ran back the distance between Marathon and Athens, somewhere between 21 and 25 miles, depending on how you go. And with the news of victory, when he arrived back in Athens, he fell dead. Now, based on this legend, the modern Marathon race began between Marathon and Athens in the 1896 Olympics, only later to be lengthened to 26.2 miles in the, eight, in the 1908 Olympics. So, what kind of race are you running in this Christian life? We all know those who began their Christian life with a flurry of activity and enthusiasm. But when trials and disappointments came, they dropped out. They may not have been prepared for the grueling nature of the race. And if that's you, or that's someone you love, if that's their experience, you or they may need to take a break. Take a moment to be refreshed, to be renewed, to own up to the reality that the Christian race, the Christian journey, is a long haul. Once you are refreshed, once you have embraced that truth, get back in the race. Of course, we should never take a break from walking with the Lord, but there may be times in our lives when we have to reevaluate the journey, when we have to reevaluate our commitment to this lifelong journey. Now, I have never run a marathon before, but I know there's no such thing as an easy marathon. We need to get out of our heads this idea that the Christian life is easy, that it's all glory and effortless bliss. Of course, there's always joy on a journey, but there are also times of trial that require great endurance. So make up your mind to hang in there with the Lord through tough times so that you too can look back at the end and say with Paul, I have finished the race. The third phrase that Paul uses here to refer to his past is, I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Now, several times in these letters to Timothy, Paul talks about the deposit. This deposit that Timothy is to guard. What is he referring to with this phrase, the deposit? Well, Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel. He's talking about the core teachings of the Christian faith. When he says that he has kept the faith, he means that he has carefully guarded the truth of Jesus Christ, the, the truth that God had entrusted to him. He has not brought into it any air about who Christ is, about these, these ideas that were circulating about Jesus in his day. His life and his teachings had held true to the teachings of Jesus. So what about us? We can't keep a faith that we are unclear about. To be able to look back on our lives and echo the words of Paul here, we need to be clear on what are the essentials of the faith. So I want to encourage you to take some time 
and sink down into the teachings of Jesus. Remember that great commission, that great commandment? The great commission says that we are to pass on the teachings of Jesus. Know what we believe so that we cannot be so that we will not be tossed around by the winds of change, by the winds of false teaching in our day and age. It's as important now in the Christian faith as it was back in Paul's day to understand the essentials of the teachings of Jesus. Paul could finish well because he could look at his present, and he saw his ministry as reproduction, his life as sacrifice, his impending death as departure, and he could look at his past, He knew he was involved in this struggle for Christ. He had not dropped out of the race, and he had guarded the deposit, the truth of the gospel. But he also looked forward. He looked forward to the future with hope. Look at verse 8. Paul's view of the future. In spite his dismal circumstances, he had a secure hope in the future. And there are two aspects of Paul's future hope. First, Paul hoped to meet this righteous judge. He could finish well because he was looking forward to a day when he would meet Jesus, the righteous judge. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a judge before. I don't look forward to that day. Um, it, It sounds to me like meeting a judge would bring dread rather than hope. Who in their right mind wants to end their life in front of a judge? Right? Well, how many of you know the song, I Could Only Imagine, uh, by Bart Millard? It's a Mercy Me song. In this song, he imagines this scene of meeting a righteous judge, and he sings, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Will I be, in all of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence to my knees? Will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Now, when we imagine this future encounter with the righteous judge, we probably all expect to experience some awe standing before the Lord. But the prevailing emotion in the Bible, the the emotion that the Bible puts forward, is, is that of expectant hope. Christians should long for the appearance of Jesus, the righteous judge, with hope. And here's why. As as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, he says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus says in John 5, 24, The one who believes in him does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. If you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you do not need to fear the final judgment. The reason that you will not be condemned is is not because you're a good person or you got it all figured out, but rather it is because of Jesus. And because of his death on the cross, God demonstrated God's perfect righteousness at the cross. When we trust in Jesus, God credits Jesus' righteousness to our account. So we are to be people of hope. The Lord, the righteous judge, will welcome us into his presence based on his perfect righteousness. That future reality should help us to run the race of faith with endurance.
The second thing about the way Paul viewed his future is summarized by the phrase, that day. It's clear that Paul had in mind some kind of major reward that he was working for in Christ. And he summarized that reward with the phrase, the crown of righteousness. Now, to be truthful and honest, it's difficult to interpret what Paul means here by this phrase, the crown of righteousness. Is this a special reward given to only some believers who have lived an especially righteous life, but not to all? Or is this the reward of eternal righteousness given to all believers who have already been justified by faith? Could Paul be saying that some people receive extra rewards beyond entrance into heaven because of their faithful work for Jesus? Well, I don't have a clear answer to any of these questions. But what I do know is that the word that Paul uses here for crown, it refers to the wreath that was given to the victor in those original Olympic Games. Of course, in that kind of competition, not all receive this crown. Only those who have won their competition. So while the Bible teaches that salvation is a free gift, it also seems to imply that God will reward us based on our service to him, and that these rewards will differ among believers. So our work, somehow, in this cosmic economy, does matter. It matters for eternity. Some of our life's work is meaningless for the kingdom of God. Some of us have spent much of our lives building kingdoms simply for ourselves. And those self-centered efforts will be burned up because they are not founded in Christ. Yet whatever we do in Christ will endure the judgment of God. So as we think about this, it's important to remember this truth. You and I, we are not our work. Our meaningless work, those things not focused on Jesus and his kingdom, will not be sustained, they'll not be rewarded Yet our work in the Lord, this, the time that we spend focused on serving him, on, on building his kingdom, those efforts will be sustained. Those efforts will be rewarded in eternity. However this all works out, Paul knew that he was working for a future reward. And he was motivated to stay active in this work until the very end of his life, until a day that Paul called that day. He spoke of this reality very often. In fact, in this letter, this is the third time that Paul has mentioned that day. Clearly, he lived in view of that day, the day in the future when he would stand before Jesus, the righteous judge. But when was the last time that you thought about that day? Does the fact of that day motivate your work life, your everyday life. The fact that you will be standing before the Lord, the righteous judge, it should motivate us to live a righteous life. I once read of a journalist who was in charge of writing and editing the obituaries for a newspaper. One day he didn't have any deaths to record, so he put a sheet of paper in a blank typewriter and he wrote his name on the top of that paper. And then he began to write his own obituary. He said something like this, I've been a good husband, 
I've been a fine father. I've contributed to a number of worthy causes. I've left a reputation of absolute integrity. My friends are many. My regrets are few. By the time he had finished the page, he was inspired to give himself more fully to the task of living into these words. This exercise of writing his own obituary, it strengthened his resolve to make the most of his day, living in light of that day, when he will receive his due reward from God. So what are you living for today? Perhaps the circumstances of your life are pretty dismal. Maybe you're even considering dropping out of this Christian race. From Paul's dungeon, the aged apostle calls out to each of us, and Paul says, don't quit. Keep going. You can finish well. Paul says, keep in focus my view of the present. You can reproduce yourself in others and carry on the torch of Christ after you. You can view your life as a sacrifice to God, your death as a departure to be with Christ. Paul says, keep in focus my view of the past so that you will be able to look back and say, I have engaged in that good fight, that struggle for the cause of Christ. I didn't drop out of the race. I guarded the truth of the gospel. Paul says to each of us, keep in focus my view of the future. Remember that soon you will stand before the Lord, the righteous judge, vindicated by his grace. Live in view of that day. If you and I live with Paul's focus of the present, the past, and the future in mind, we will finish well. And that's good news. We pray with me today? Father God, I thank you that you have empowered us through your word to have a focus in life that is sustainable. A focus which is clearly evident in the life of Paul and founded upon the life of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us such a firm foundation upon which to build our lives. And we pray that we would empower one another through encouragement, through um, mutual service, through mutual submission to one another, God, in ways that would further your kingdom and proclaim your gospel. We thank you for your goodness extended to us today, for life and breath, for all that we have. We are grateful. We ask your blessing upon your word and the application of your word in our lives today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.